Hello, welcome. Thank you for joining me on First Responder Psychological Support. This is Season 1, Episode 7, and this one is called Having is Wanting. My name is Sarah Gura. I'm a master's level licensed clinical professional counselor in the state of Illinois. I'm an EMDR therapist, a yoga teacher, and my private practice is the self-care path in Burridge, Illinois, where I treat first responders. And again, the topic is called having is wanting. But first, as always, I would love for you to take a nice deep breath in that expands the chest. And when you exhale, my hope is that you just release and rest the body. Take a moment maybe to uh, elongate the spine or straighten your spine. Find your seat and get comfortable. And if you're not sitting down, of course, maybe just allow your body for a moment to transition into listening. And one thing that I want to do before addressing this topic and describing it is I want to take a moment to cheer on a lot of the peer supporters that are listening to this podcast. I have had some uh, beautiful messages uh, from peer supporters who are listening and who are making it their business to make it safe for first responders to talk about any psychological concerns uh, because of the job or maybe even in the personal life. Uh, I also see a lot of other first responders who are disclosing their own personal story so that others may learn from what they have been through. And that includes sometimes what they go through legally and those those situations are usually quite painful uh, because we don't have a set system that honors the integrity of psychological injuries for first responders. I also have been hearing from first responders who study psychology for their self and for others. They're getting master's degrees and doctorate degrees in psychology because there's this craving to understand what the heck is going on and they're thinking I have to I have to take care of this myself. I'm going to have to learn and bring the culture to psychology and you know share it with others and I think that that's amazing. And many ways, I say this with all the love in my heart, the walking wounded are the ones that lead the way. And if we look at any therapists, we have to address and we have to talk about when we go to college and when we do our internships and we are under supervision, we have to talk about the fact that we were probably drawn to psychology because we were able to admit that we were hurt. In one way or another, we wanted to help ourselves or we wanted to understand our family of origin so that we could do better with our family of creation. And I see that that's no different in the first responder world. Those who are stepping forward and who want to be helpful may have seen or experienced a lot of suffering themselves. And so I say that it, it is very brave for someone to step forward, to study, to share a story, or to learn so that they can become a peer supporter and help other first responders in need. So we really need to take a moment and be filled with gratitude for them. Now, another thing that I want to mention before I get into this podcast of having is wanting 
is to remind you a little bit of a recap of what we've been through, which the second podcast was called Intro to First Responder Behavioral Health. And we talked about the job description, which is that you are confronted with a lot of human illness, human death, human suffering, human stupidity, and property destruction. We went through a bunch of vocabulary to help describe the different ways that the career can be upsetting or even painful. You know, anything from the different types of trauma, the potentially traumatic events, the sickness, compassion fatigue, empath fatigue, which is codependency fatigue. And then we went into signs and symptoms of what happens when we only have trauma bonding instead of peer support and what happens when we don't have an understanding of psychology when we don't know how to cope with a lot of the discomforts that this career is going to force upon you and then we went into this idea of here's what a you know a department could do to make it safe for us to start to approach this topic but by and large I hold all my clients responsible for themselves. I remind them, stop waiting for something outside of yourself to take care of yourself. And so we went into this introduction of how to be mindful. And then the last podcast before this one was about pain and how we need to have perspective on our pain so that we can be more purposeful with it. That's the prerequisite to being productive instead of destructive so that we have a sense of pride when we go to sleep at night. It's so important that we like ourselves at the end of the day. And when we do that, when we live in that way, there's a pleasure to it, even though there's a pain. So we're experiencing pain or we're experiencing that shit hitting the fan, but we love the way that we tend to it. And that's my suggestion of how we get through life. We can't stop the shit from hitting the fan, but we can certainly do something about how we clean it up, which is a very powerful approach, and it shows what your potential truly is. But again, in the last podcast, I mentioned that the ego can sometimes really get in the way, and we may not know that that's happening. And so let's talk about this having is wanting, which I really became more aware of myself and was able to use this language when I noticed that having is evidence of wanting. And that is a quotation from Dr. Karen, Carolyn Elliott. So having is evidence of wanting. That's pretty interesting quotation if we think about it. And I want to take you back to Carl Jung. Carl Jung was a Swiss psychologist who also talked about the ego. And in this case, your ego is your unconscious self and it can become conscious. Okay. Um, But Carl Jung also referred to the ego as the shadow. And what we need to do is turn inward so that we can notice, so that we could see the shadow. Now, one way that I was asking you to witness your ego or your shadow was to look at the wolves. I had talked about if something triggers you, you can watch your thoughts. And I mentioned that a lot of people think that they are their thoughts, but you are not your thoughts. You're the witness or the observer of your thoughts. And that's one way, again, that we could see the ego or the shadow. 
But I want to go back to Dr. Carolyn Elliott's existential kink idea. That was her book or is her book. And she really emphasized a quote from Carl Jung in that text. I'm going to call it a text, but it's a book. Um, One of Carl Jung's quotations that she focused on was this, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you will call it fate. And another important quotation that goes with this idea of noticing the shadow or your ego or making the conscious or the unconscious conscious is another quotation from Marianne Williamson. And she said, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. And I truly see that in a lot of my first responder clients. Again, enough to mention all of this and try to put it together in a podcast uh, for people's understanding. Uh, Because maybe if we can learn how to understand ourselves better, then we will suffer less. And that's my whole goal. Again, I always say pain is inevitable, but you're suffering. It's an option. And one way to not choose that option is to educate yourself about psychological support, especially as it relates to your career. But again, let's hit back on this having is wanting or having is evidence of wanting, as Dr. Carolyn Elliott talked about. Now, I'm going to give you my interpretation of this and how I use this theory Um, after learning about it, both in college and through reading all these books. (laughs) But I like to think of for just a moment, let's think of a 500 pound woman. And let's say that this 500 pound woman does not have a medical issue, except for what she has caused herself for or from being 500 pounds. So it sounds like a brutal approach. And I am certain if I did this as a therapist, uh, this particular patient, a 500-pound woman, would say that I am an asshole. But what I would say in my mind in assessing her is that she loves to be fat. She loves this, right? And how would I know that? Because there is a strange conflict going on in this patient who doesn't have a medical issue that is causing her to be 500 pounds, And let's take a look at the conflict. Let's say that she loved ice cream. We're just going to make this kind of simple. On one side of the conflict, she loves this ice cream and she wants to have ice cream every day. And on the other side of the conflict is she does not want the ice cream. Again, this sounds so simple, right? We know we shouldn't eat ice cream every single day, especially in large quantities. We look at intensity, frequency, and the duration of any kind of addiction behavior. And when we look at the conflict, for some of us, it should be very easy. Maybe even there is no conflict. I would never eat ice cream every day, for example. But let's say this woman was faced with ice cream and she felt in conflict over it all the time. We have to look at what is fueling that conflict. 
Why is that such a difficult decision for her in her mind that she got to the point of extreme self-sabotage weighing 500 pounds? What I say is that there's that side A, I want ice cream, side B, I don't want ice cream, but underneath that is part C. Underneath that, what is fueling this, you know, inappropriate self-sabotaging behavior is this idea of I love to be fat. I love the shame it causes me. I love to feel full. I love to be embarrassed about my body. Now, some people would say, Sarah, this sounds nuts. I'm not following you. However, if we go back to having is wanting, having the ice cream was wanting the conflict, perhaps. Having the ice cream was wanting that body. If I'm going to help this particular patient not self-sabotage, I have to understand her ego or her shadow that dark part of her personality that does and actively hurts her. And there is an idea called repetition compulsion. And repetition compulsion comes from Sigmund Freud. And what that is, is it describes this idea that a human being will want to replay their trauma. They want to act it out over and over and over again to see if they can get some kind of control over it. And again, I try to emphasize that we do not have control, especially over something that happened in the past. We can't ever go back there. We can't change the past. We have to lose all hope that we can rewrite the past, in fact. So repetition compulsion is kind of this pain in the butt behavior where once again, we try to recreate a trauma to see if we have control and we don't. So if I access this idea with the 500 pound woman that she is recreating shame, she is recreating embarrassment, she is recreating maybe a sensation that she felt often in her childhood, then we understand that I love being fat part, right? And it's not a true love. It's a superficial love. It's a self-sabotaging love. But having is wanting covers this idea that she is really failing at trying to succeed at being in control of an issue. But if I go back in history to her issue and help her desensitize and reprocess that, then maybe she could be free and liberate herself from that repetition compulsion. Now, that is definitely some EMDR language, and we will get there in these podcasts eventually. But how do we get this patient to be conscious of her unconscious material? So one way that we can do that is, again, to show her that she loves this particular self-sabotaging behavior. So maybe when she is driving by Dairy Queen or door dashing it or whatever it is going through a drive through to get some ice cream, I would ask that person to bravely say, I love being fat. I love the shame it causes me and I love the embarrassment. That sometimes is like lifting the hood of the car and seeing the engine and realizing what is driving us to do something very self-sabotaging. It's also very difficult (laughs) to 
pull into, uh, you know, a an ice cream place and have the ice cream, right? There's many seemingly unimportant decisions that go into that. You have to, let's say, get in the vehicle. You have to drive there. You might have to pull up to a window or get out. You have to order. You have to pay for it. You have to drive away with it, and you have to start eating it. Those are all the seemingly unimportant decisions that go into this one self-sabotaging behavior. But if you become more conscious of your ego or your shadow in that moment by saying, I love being fat, I love the embarrassment, I love the shame, then you are starting to notice that repetition compulsion a little more consciously, and it becomes difficult to follow through on that string of seemingly unimportant decisions. And when I have used this with first responder clients, and I've explained this to them, they admit not only am I doing that particular self-sabotaging behavior less, whatever it was that was bothering them, uh, they also can't go through a drive through as easily uh, because they're like, no, I, I don't want to be fat. I want to stay, you know, in shape. I want to take care of my body. So it's kind of interesting how once we learn to make the unconscious material more conscious, that we start to notice our bad behaviors and what we say to ourselves in order to get away with, with stuff. And for example, you know, the ego is very tricky. If we stay on this fat woman who loves ice cream and we picture let's say she is driving past that dairy queen or about to she instead of saying i love being fat i love um, being embarrassed i love shame her ego can also say it's only once a day it's hot outside this will cool me off it's just a small sweet treat i'll get a kid size instead today that is also the ego talking to you, trying to convince you to do that act of repetition compulsion, which again is deeply rooted in a trauma. So what I want to do now is give you another example. I want to talk about something a little more serious than ice cream or uh, being fat. Let's talk about alcoholism for a second. Again, we have to be careful because this theory can be so offensive to people, and I understand that it is not for everyone. So take a nice deep breath in as I talk about alcoholism and exhale and relax your body. This is just a theory. It doesn't have to be used by you in order to feel better. But let's say that you are just hungover, and it's close to the weekend, your weekend, your shift weekend. And you are actually consider considering drinking again. Maybe there's a golf outing or some kind of event where you're, you and the guys are going to get together and have a couple drinks. Now, already, even though you were just hungover, you are thinking about drinking and being hungover again. So let's apply this having is wanting theory to this situation. On one side... I don't want to drink alcohol. I don't want to be drunk again. I don't want to waste a day trying to recover. And on the other side, I totally want to do this. I want to go have fun. I don't want to restrict myself. I don't want to be that guy that orders a non-alcoholic beverage. Again, for many people, this isn't a conflict at all. 
But for some people, their ego actively engages in the conflict of to drink or to not drink. So we have to take a look at that part C, like I described before, that is fueling the conflict underneath the surface. And underneath the surface is, I love being an alcoholic. I love to drink. I love the taste. I love the smell. I love the buzz. I love to get drunk. And if we take a look at the emotional or psychological quality of the repetition compulsion, maybe it is, I love to self-sabotage. I love to physically punish my body. I love to be embarrassed or to not know what I did the night before. And why would anybody like those things, right? Once again, the ego is a strange character, the shadow, that likes to repeat something that has happened in the past. So maybe dad was an alcoholic and this is how you learned to deal with your emotions. Consciously or subconsciously, you were a witness of that behavior in your childhood. And because they didn't use any other method for coping, then you developed the coping mechanism of drinking yourself. Now, there's many reasons why people may become an alcoholic, but for the sake of the podcast, I just want to talk about that fueling part. What is fueling the conflict? It is usually the ego that has a repetition compulsion element to it that is trying to repeat a trauma it personally experienced or that it witnessed, and it doesn't know how else to cope. So again, what's interesting when I work with first responders is that if I ask them to think about these sort of repulsive statements of, I love being hungover, I love to self-sabotage, I love to hurt my body, uh, they'll tell me, yeah, I went to that party or that golf outing or this social gathering or whatever it was, and I put water between the drinks or I stopped sooner than I expected because I remembered our talk about having is wanting and I don't want to have a hangover. I don't want a hangover. When I have had a hangover, apparently you're right, I did want it because I engaged in every seemingly unimportant decision to get to that point. And I did it repeatedly. So again, this is a sort of wild way to take a look at the ego or the shadow or to get the subconscious material to become more conscious so that we can take a little bit more wisdom into the battle of the conflicts uh, between the egos. So again, what we also need to address and what I am going to address in the next podcast is some information about trauma because our repetition compulsion that shows up in this having is wanting is definitely driven by a root and that root is complex trauma. So there's a difference that I'm going to be talking about between complex trauma trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder in the next podcast so that we can start to understand once again why we would even end up in these unhealthy situations making unhealthy decisions in response to some of the things that we are triggered by or that we experience in the present day moment. 
So again, emphasizing that first responders have a childhood history, they have a life history, they have a job that brings them a lot of other people's traumas, and that builds up and can create a lot of subconscious material that could become quite self-sabotaging, and that is what I'm treating in my office. So I hope this idea was unique and helpful for you and gave you some insights so that you can start you know, working through the brain and understanding what the heck is going on here. So thank you for listening to First Responder Psychological Support. Again, my name is Sarah Gura. I'm a licensed clinical professional counselor for first responders at the Self Care Path in Burr Ridge, Illinois. And I'm going to remind you to do life so it doesn't do you and to take very good care of yourself and, of course, stay very safe. All right. Bye-bye.